It was the year 59 CE, and Nero ruled the Roman Empire. Commanding a loyal Praetorian guard and an elite army, and celebrated among the Roman people, his power was supreme and unchallenged, except for the one person who still resisted his every demand and still held sway over him, his mother. The Empress Agrippina, wife of his predecessor Claudius and the power behind his throne from an early age, had ambition, pride, shrewdness, and an iron will to match the most fearsome tyrants. Perhaps more than Nero himself possessed. And perhaps he knew it. By this year in his reign, Nero had already begun entertaining the thought of putting his imperious mother in the grave before her time. His five years of rule had inspired him with new confidence, and he was ready to end what he saw as Agrippina's absurd, insulting control over him. She opposed his marriage to Poppea, the love of his life, and had been the obstacle to every desire he had, always trying to control him, to play him for a fool. And Poppea, for her part, had stoked up Nero's fears by persuading him that Agrippina was even plotting against his life, the life of the emperor, in her bid for power. These murderous feelings weren't new for Nero. Had he already tried to quietly push her out of the way with poison? Of course he had, but it hadn't worked, and he wasn't so reckless that he would use outright violence against her. So he had listened to the advice of his trusted courtier Tigellinus, a high-ranking lackey with a set of morals to match Nero's own. His next move against Agrippina would be a clever trick. He would make it appear that his mother had died in an accident at sea. To lay the groundwork for this plan, Nero started to make loud expressions that he wanted to patch things up with his mother. What else can we do as children, the emperor would say to his guests, except listen to our parents, respect them, and accept their anger with courage. It is my duty as a son to reassure my mother and calm her concerns about me. I only want to be on good terms with her again. Over and over he repeated this to various people, and so he made sure that the words would reach the ears of his mother. To Agrippina herself, who began hearing the rumors in due course, it seemed like Nero's feelings might truly be changing. Maybe he would restore her proper honors as mother of the emperor, the ones that he had already stripped away. The hope kindled by what she heard fell on the empress mother like a ray of sunshine out of the dark clouds all around her. Agrippina was a razor-sharp woman, hardly an easy target for pleasant lies, and no stranger to conspiracies in her own right. But perhaps it was natural that, in her misery, she would be more willing to believe good news. And maybe her heart had been softened by her time living in the town of Antium, now in the very home where she had given birth to her son, where every room recalled the memories of his innocent, happy childhood. On March 18th, just before the annual festival of Minerva called the Quinquatria began, Agrippina's heart burst with joy at receiving a delightful letter from her son. 
writing in the most loving terms, Nero had invited her to join him at Baiae, a beautiful seaside town on the Bay of Naples, to celebrate the first day of the festival there with him. The very next morning, happier than she had ever been, she made her way through the grounds of her villa to the little dock where a ship was kept, which she used to go out along the shore from time to time, and which today would carry her to Nero at Baiae. Guided by the Empress's team of rowers, Agrippina's ship had hardly rounded Cape Messenum when they met the great imperial yacht in which Nero had sailed out to meet her. He came on board her boat, warmly hugged her, and accompanied her to a coastal villa at Bauli, where she would disembark and continue her voyage on her own to their nearby destination of Baiae. He said goodbye to her, saying that they would meet again in the evening, and then he pointed to another richly adorned ship, colored with gold and vermilion, anchored under the trees of her villa, a team of imperial sailors stationed at hand. And look, mother, Nero said with a smile, I've made sure that you shall be brought to Baiae with the splendor and style you deserve. He was well aware of Agrippina's weakness for this kind of display. She loved opulence and glory, both for its own sake and for how it impressed everyone who saw it. And this ship outdid even the ones she sailed during her days as the wife of Emperor Claudius, before her son was raised up to power. As she rested after her voyage to Bauli, she made herself up in her most magnificent jeweled robes. She was full of anticipation, and thought that the tortures of the last five years were finally at an end. But in spite of all this, Agrippina's sixth sense for danger and intrigue didn't allow her to relax her guard. She felt an unwillingness that she couldn't put her finger on to go aboard the ship Nero had prepared. She tried to convince herself otherwise, but in the end decided to avoid the ship entirely at least for her trip to Nero's court at Baiae. She ordered her litter to be brought, and was carried by land all the way there. When she arrived at Nero's party, she was received with open arms. The guests and the many slaves, all in their finest attire, were grouped around the entrance. The assembled nobles and courtiers bowed low as she advanced towards her son. Nero himself seemed to be in an especially cheerful mood and welcomed her with charm and tenderness. He led his mother to the banquet, which overlooked the exquisitely beautiful shoreline below the villa. No element of luxury or beauty was lacking at their banquet. Nero assured her that he himself had caught the fish that were served, but she knew that no one could believe a word he said. Nero insisted that Agrippina should occupy the seat of honor at the table, even above himself. When she politely declined, he said, Who else do I owe my entire life and my empire to, except for my dear mother? He tried his hardest to lay on all his charm, to satisfy her ambition by making her feel special and honored, to make her feel loved and comfortable. It was a masterful performance, and Agrippina slowly but surely fell into the trap. Now again her suspicions were roused, 
but she dismissed them every time. After all, she convinced herself, why shouldn't all of it be sincere? Was she not his mother? Was he not her son? What was more natural than a tender moment of reconciliation between two who were so close and so dear to each other? The hours sped by, but at last it was time to return to her place at Bowley, for the banquet had gone on far into the night. And as she prepared to leave, even Nero, devious and murderous as he was, felt the terrible weight of the moment when he would see his mother alive for the last time. Farewell, dear mother, he said almost with a sob, which came easily to someone so skilled in conjuring fake emotions. Please take care of yourself, for my sake. And then he handed her off to Anicetus, who would be the captain of her ship back to Bowley, and he turned hastily away. With a smile and a malevolent glint in his evil eye, the captain Anicetus led her on board the finely decorated ship, which had been brought for her pleasure. After a long evening of Nero's charm and flowing wine, Agrippina had no second thoughts about sailing on it. The planks were covered in purple, and a canopy of purple silk with gold embroidery covered the stern. Under the canopy was a couch, where Agrippina was happy to lie down after so many hours, and her two attendants stood by. Little did these three know that Nero's plan was in motion. As Anicetus piloted the ship away from the coast, Agrippina happily recounted the day with her two attendants, remembering Nero's kindness and hoping for the restoration of all her appropriate honors at the imperial court. She would again be respected as Augusta, an empress with the grace and dignity befitting a wife of one ruler and the mother of another. But all her daydreams were suddenly broken when a sharp whistle was heard from near the prow where Anicetus was standing. The whistle was followed by a frightening crash as the canopy above Agrippina rushed down over their heads. This was Nero's first trap. It had been weighted with lead, and so designed that with the pull of a rope it would break off its supports, and down it fell on the unsuspecting victims. One of her attendants was crushed to death at once by the debris. The surviving one, and Agrippina herself, who avoided the brunt of it, had barely a moment to realize what had happened when they saw the whole ship in a state of confusion. The sailors who were a part of the plot saw the canopy trap hadn't succeeded in killing the empress. So they rushed to scuttle the boat and collapse it offshore, intending to drown her at sea, all according to plan. Agrippina's last servant, whether to save herself or protect her mistress, screamed out at the top of her lungs, I am the empress, the mother of Caesar! Help me! The conspirators heard, and in an instant, she was set upon by a shower of violent blows with oars and boat hooks, which beat the false victim brutally. In a moment, she too lay outstretched in death. Agrippina returned to her senses, and being well practiced in the art of plots and deception, understood exactly what was happening. She hid among the debris and kept perfect silence. Her will to survive took command, 
Taking advantage of the confusion and the darkness, she waited for an opportune moment and rolled herself overboard. She was a good swimmer and struck out for the land. Even though her shoulder was wounded by the canopy and every stroke was painful, still she swam for the land with all her remaining strength. Here was a Roman matron who had only recently swayed the world, a half-deified empress, the great-granddaughter of Augustus, the daughter of the hero Germanicus, the wife and priestess of the deified emperor Claudius, and the mother of the reigning Caesar. And yet she was swimming for her life in the jeweled robes she had just worn at an imperial feast, escaping to land from the golden barge that was murderously wrecked by the cruel designs of her own son. Agrippina's will did not fail her. She made it to land, found refuge with friends not connected to the imperial plot, and would go on to live another day. But she knew she would have to do so carefully, and with no trust left in the words of Nero, her would-be killer. Now she understood the first letter which had summoned her from Antium. She understood why her son had sailed to Cape Messanum to meet her, and steer her towards sailing on the boat. She saw through the exquisite banquet, the hypocritical compliments, the murder so diabolically planned. Her blood ran hot and cold, with a mixture of anger and sorrow. Now nursing the heart of a wounded mother, now seething with a thirst for revenge. Agrippina knew that a show of force, open violence against Nero, was out of the question. She had no more energy left, and was dangerously short of powerful allies. The people hated her, resenting her power. The Senate and the aristocracy were too servile to Nero and too self-interested to take a stand on her behalf. But a glimmer of hope remained alive in her. Was it possible that, at the last moment, her son would have a change of heart? Those farewell embraces seemed to her to express something genuine. Perhaps when Nero realized that he had, in spite of his plans, escaped being guilty of killing his mother, he might discover how wrong he had been. The gods had offered him one more opportunity to treat her properly. Would he take it? So Agrippina decided to play dumb. She would feign ignorance of the plot designed against her and hold out hope that the love of a son for his mother would somehow come back. And so she had a message sent to Nero's court on her behalf that by the mercy of the gods, his mother was saved from a terrible disaster at sea. But he shouldn't be overly concerned for her and shouldn't come to visit. She was tired and needed time to rest by herself. This message would buy her some much-needed time. Meanwhile, in the court at Baiae, Nero was getting restless, nervously awaiting news to confirm his mother's demise. He should have heard something by now. But his fears had nothing to do with the crime he was committing, or guilt about the outcome. He was only afraid that he might have failed to be rid of the terrifying figure of his domineering mother. He was too uneasy to sleep, too anxious to indulge in any pleasures. But finally he got news, 
that the plot had indeed failed, that Agrippina was very much alive. At this news his face drained of all color, and he flew into a scared frenzy. Now what will she do? whimpered Nero. Will she put swords in the hands of her slaves to come and murder me? Will she get the soldiers on her side? Will she go to Rome and accuse me in front of everyone? He called together his inner circle in a panic. Tigellinus, his courtier. Burrus, the level-headed leader of the Praetorian Guard that protected the emperor. And the philosopher Seneca, who had tutored Nero as he grew up and remained a close advisor. Attempts to calm Nero's frazzled nerves were in vain. Burrus and Seneca were both respected men of principle, who had been able to keep Nero's impulses in check for years, until he increasingly broke free and gave way to his worst instincts. Even they were forced to entertain the notion of sending the Praetorians, the emperor's own bodyguard, to slaughter the empress in cold blood. After all, this was a scandal whose magnitude and depravity could damage Nero's reputation in the eyes of the Senate and the people alike. The murder of parents was no small matter in the eyes of Romans. But it was just then that a door opened, and the treacherous captain Anicetus arrived to join them, having made it back to the villa from the site of the collapsed imperial boat. And with his arrival, a new solution presented itself. A former slave freed by Nero, now indebted to the emperor and completely reliant on his goodwill, Anicetus had already proven he would be willing to do Nero's bidding at all costs, however heinous it was. All eyes in the room turned to him. He advanced to Nero, slowly and with downcast eyes, and knelt down before his lord. He was acutely, painfully aware of his failure and the danger it put his life in. The emperor turned to him with a look of rage and disdain, and loomed over him, then darkly told the cowering man that his life should pay the penalty of his failure, unless there were a way to make things right. Anicetus immediately caught the emperor's point, unspoken though it was. Let nothing trouble your mind, great Caesar, he stammered hoarsely, anxious to get the words out. Your wish is my command, and your will must be done. Only give me your blessing to finish what I started. I leave it all in your hands, Nero answered with an air of dignity, as if the power of life and death he commanded gave him new confidence. He looked askance at his two advisors. If Seneca and Burrus are too timid to strike a blow for their emperor, at least Anicetus won't hesitate. He affectionately clasped the hand of the captain, and his mood brightened before their very eyes. Burrus and Seneca, patriotic men with famous careers behind them, gave approval by their silence, but regretted in the pits of their stomachs their service to a man who was every day descending further into outright tyranny. But the plot wasn't decided yet. One more piece of the puzzle had yet to fall into place. What would be their excuse for murdering Agrippina? What crime would Nero pin on his mother that would be so terrible 
so terrifying that it would convince the people of Rome that her death was justified. And then, as if fate had planned it all out for them in advance, another visitor was announced. It was the messenger whom the soaked, exhausted, traumatized Agrippina had sent to Nero's court. Upon hearing this, the emperor and Anicetus traded excited whispers back and forth. Yes, the plan is excellent, great Caesar, the captain said flatteringly. Both Seneca and Burrus were amazed and shocked at the stupid and shameless comedy that unfolded before their eyes. The messenger was invited in, and he had barely begun to deliver his words when Nero brazenly stepped up to him and dropped a sword at his feet. It fell with a clang on the mosaic floor, and as soon as it had, instantly Nero and Anicetus began to shout and point at the sword. Murder! Treason! Murder! This man has been sent to stab the emperor! By Agrippina herself! On hearing the shouts, the Praetorian guards came rushing in, and the messenger was locked in chains. Now, Anicetus had the excuse he needed. He gathered a band of soldiers and sailors, and made his way straight from there to the villa at Bauli. By the order of the emperor, he was charged with executing an enemy of the state, whose plot to assassinate her son had just been revealed. When the execution squad arrived, they found a crowd thronging around the villa's grounds, curious to what was happening with the emperor's mother inside. They turned the crowds away angrily, posted guards around the perimeter, and burst into the house. Agrippina was still in her dimly lit room, growing more anxious by the minute as her messenger had not yet returned with a message from Nero. And then she heard it. The sounds of doors thrown open, of heavy footfalls entering the atrium. The slaves who had kept the household fled the scene, and others who were especially faithful to the empress were dragged away by force. Agrippina's long years in the halls of supreme power had taught her to know these sounds. She knew in her heart that the end was nigh. There was no escape, and no hope left in the love of her son. And right on cue, her door was rudely cast open, and she was met with the cruel face of Anicetus, a drawn sword in his right hand. Agrippina thought fast, and her consummate self-control, even in situations of mortal danger, didn't fail her now. She would conduct herself with all the imperial dignity she could muster. If you have come from my son to ask about my health, she said, tell him that I'm feeling much better. More troops came in, and they moved in on her, weapons raised. Agrippina jumped from her couch and stood up. Then one of them brutally struck her a blow on the head, and Anicetus thrust his sword right at her heart. But she was quick, and avoided the blade. She took a few steps back, and dramatically tore the front of her gown in her last act of defiance. She knew her moment had come, and she would bear it proudly, angrily. Aim your swords here, she cried, pointing to her stomach. Strike here. This womb gave birth to a monster. Without hesitation, the killers obliged. 
A moment later, the Empress was dead, pierced through with countless cruel wounds. And so perished Agrippina, the great-granddaughter of Augustus, the sister of Gaius Caligula, the wife of Claudius, the mother and victim of Nero. Imperious, clever, grandiose, and ambitious, an unstoppable force in the family of the Caesars, she had passed on all these traits to the man who ordered her death. All of them but one. The will to control himself. The Empress's body was hastily burned on a dining couch, with only the minimum respects paid and rituals performed. No memorial was granted to her as long as Nero lived. Only after his reign had ended, under the care of loyal friends, was she honored with a tomb. Agrippina had fallen victim to a killer of her own making. But despite this, her success in grooming a son for the apex of imperial power had, after all, been achieved. Some say that the Empress, years before, had seen an astrologer to learn what the fates had in store for her young son. The astrologer, interpreting the signs, warned her with a dark message, that he would rule the world, but end his mother's life. And to this Agrippina had answered, with no fear, Let Nero kill, as long as he rules. For his part, Nero's crime would go on to haunt him, with nights filled with waking dreams and dread. But the same lust for absolute power and freedom, at the cost of blood, would only grow as he traveled further and further down this dark path. And in the end, it would not only ruin his family's whole dynasty, but end his own life at the point of a blade.